why I like road trips. It's good to remind yourself that the world's larger than the inside of your own head. Perspective. It is beautiful out here in a bleak, heartbroken kind of way. When was the last road trip I took? Hmm. I should remember, but I don't. I finished June. You finished it? Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. It's like I said, it actually skips along when you get into it. Okay. <laughs> the only man in the history of the world to say June just skips along. If if, any, if anything, I would argue the third act is far too fast and needs padding out. Wowza. Well, good thing there are more books in the series to pad it out. No, 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 no. I'm done. Oh, you're done now, are you? <laughs> one, one, one and done. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm very impressed. Hopefully you'll remember everything when we get to it in December. Well, I don't know. I watched the movie we are about to talk about uh, last night, and I'm not entirely sure I remember very much of it. I, I have very <laughs> furious notes. That to... <laughs> I did not realise we were supposed to take notes. This is obviously where I've been going wrong all these many weeks. Well, I have thoughts as I'm watching it that I, you know, my anger and frustration, I want to make sure I can identify those points. <laughs> anger and frustration. Yeah, see, I, 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 I tend to enjoy the movie with a few glasses of wine, which... Yeah. <laughs> I like to be clear-headed. Although enjoy, enjoy is a funny word to use about that film, but anyway. So I have lots of thoughts on this. So many thoughts. So, so many, many thoughts. That's good. It's a short call, otherwise. Yeah. Welcome to book club. I'm just going to preface with saying I did not have time to get to Foe, his second book. So I failed you. I didn't know there was a second book assignment. There was a second book assignment. Just oh, okay. me, me and Tom read it. Yeah. Can <laughs> yeah. So I haven't done that. But this week we've done I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I definitely feel that way about this book. <laughs> which is by Ian Reid, which was published in 2016 by Scout Press. He's a Canadian writer. He wrote two nonfiction books. One is called One Bird's Choice and the other one is The Truth About Luck. The, the one uh, called One Bird's Choice I almost actually read. It is about a 20-some-year-old moving back home. And so he did, I'm thinking... Of ending things in 2016 and then he wrote Foe in 2018 and both were very successful quite short books and his family uh, lives on a farm on the outskirts of Ottawa <laughs> and his parents actually came from England to Canada though so he's sort of English Canadian heritage and also for those who have read Foe uh, anonymous content who made True Detective have acquired the film rights to Foe so that's currently, no? no? I mean, that's what I read. That's the internet told me. Oh, no, no, no. The facts may well be correct. It was more a judgment on anonymous content choices and things to adapt. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, they're best-selling best successful books, so I can see why someone would pick them up as potentially interest, interesting projects. We've known books that have gotten better or worse in their adaptation. I think this is, this is actually a very interesting one to talk about in terms of adaptation. And maybe I'm saying that 
because for the first time I've actually read the book. And you've read June, which is not till December. <laughs> it only took like 30 episodes for Tom to get that you're supposed to read the book too. <laughs> I get it now. I get what you're wrong. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Oh, this makes such a difference. But you know, this isn't this isn't the old god that we're talking about. This is something much more. You know, the the process of adaptation. I think here is very much more interesting. Yeah, it's more complicated. I, for me, I very purposely didn't really do a lot of research into it because reading and watching it I was like oh I have a lot of feelings just on my own about it and I just do not want anything clouding it and I'm sure there is like a lot of interesting stuff in sort of the backdrop of how it was made and developed but I think for this one because it's quite a unique story and the storytelling method I wanted to be slightly uninfluenced I don't know if you guys sort of looked into other stuff about it I I mean, I read the book and I listened to the audio book mm. as well. So you read it twice? Technically, yes. <laughs> wow. Mm. Just when I think I'm making progress. That's right. That's right, Tom. I get, I get up <laughs> I see. I see how it is, Sean. Fine. Or Dune, the audio book. Next okay. thing to deal with. Ew, who's done the audio book of Dune? That would actually be quite interesting. What's that? I wonder who's done the audiobook of Dune. Oh, I don't know. That would be interesting. God, I don't. I don't want to look up how long it is. <laughs> <laughs> I might start doing it as a podcast now. <laughs> yeah. Like an hour yeah. a day. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that by December. If it's like Stephen Fry or something, I think that could be really good. <laughs> right? No, don't laugh at me, Tom. Stephen Fry reading June, yes, oh, please. That would be amazing. <laughs> or Graham Norton, one or the other. Yeah. No, Norton reading it, I would be all over. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so book, audiobook, Tom, book, Ellie as well, and me, we just read the book. And then you both read Faux. So I suppose, do you want to, so neither of us have, Ellie nor I have read it, but do you want to give us a quick summary of the second book before or after we talk about this book? We can do. I mean, it doesn't really impact this. I, I, I think Tom and I are in agreement that Foe was weaker mm -hmm. overall in terms of kind of the narrative and the kind of, or the narrative conceit and the structure um, in comparison to this. Yeah, I, I think, I think, um... I'm thinking of ending things is actually very interesting in terms of genre and conceit and execution, whereas Foe is very by the numbers sci-fi, where I wasn't surprised uh, or, or even intrigued. Yeah, similar-ish in length, I think. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Maybe a little longer, but like pages, not nothing to write home about. But it, but it essentially could have been a short story in a 1970s sci-fi literary magazine. Oh yeah, that. it could have been like a Twilight Zone episode. Like yeah, it's it's very straight and there's a twist, but you see the twist coming from a mile off because it's very classic. Yeah. Okay. Well, totally enjoyable, but like, yeah. I respect a bit. No spoiler reviews. 
<laughs> yeah, that does it. Yeah, because Ellie and I will definitely get to that book mm. at some point. <laughs> what, what, what I'll say to Foe is, if I'd read Foe first, I wouldn't have been inclined to rush out and read I'm Thinking of Ending Things. But I think of Ending Things was interesting enough that I wanted to read his other book straight away. Okay, that's fair. I mean, I, th I think what got me... It, my initial exposure to the whole thing was the trailer for the film. Mm -hmm. And I thought the trailer for the film looked fantastic. Very deceptive. I thought, oh, yeah, no, great, an amazing trailer in retrospect. But yeah. an amazing trailer at the time. I thought, wow, this looks amazing. This is based on a book. I have to read that book. And then I found out I'd read something else. So I bought it as well. And then having got through the book, which I really enjoyed and read in a day, I thought, oh, great. And then I go into the second one and gradually got let down. So this, got to the end of it. I have a quick industry question to, for you, because this is sort of a different conversation about, you know, selling films and things. Is it usually a different company or the same production company that's doing the trailers? It would never be the production company. The marketing um, or? It's whoever's putting it out. Usually the trailer that the, the consumer sees is, yeah. is whoever's distributing the movie but Netflix yes okay uh, because obviously it's a marketing tool to try and get people interested in seeing it if you're um, you know Lionsgate and you're opening something theatrically you are in control of what the trailer looks like you know it's like the June trailer for example um, sorry to keep going back on no, June no. all the time okay well eventually I'll talk about you it know, anyway in, in certain discussion circles that I'm in the June trailer sparked a lot of debate because people were very confused by it and I agree, I think it's a very confusing trailer, but it's, it looks to me like a trailer where the marketing department weren't really sure what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, so they've opted to try and make it like a, a, a young adult sci-fi, which it clearly isn't, but they're desperately trying to crowbar it into that structure in the trailer. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't want to fit, which is why you've got this sort of weird dynamic. Um, but it's such, it's such a great trailer. The, the um, I'm thinking about ending things trailer. It, it just hooks you, and you're like, "What is yeah. this? This is intriguing, fascinating. It's going to blow my mind." It's Charlie Kaufman. Cool. I'm a, I'm a, I'm on board. I I think definitely because I saw the trailer before I knew that it was a book and deciding to do it for an episode, and it definitely looked like, "Oh, it's Tony Collette, it's David Thewlis, and like this looks kind of weird and you know interesting, quite fun." movie well th this is what this is always my problem with really good trailers i very much get suckered by uh there's a there's a phrase that they use in marketing that you sell the sizzle not the steak mm -hmm. and i i always get hooked by the sizzle especially the suggestion that it's going to show me something i've never seen before yeah and that's what gets me excited so that's what this trailer said to me you're going to see something you haven't seen before uh, and that's why I got all enthusiastic and ran out and read the books and was really looking forward to the film. So before we get to the film, we're going to talk about the book. And as always, we'll sort of break down the book and we can discuss as we go along what we... We all read the book first, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we can talk about how we felt as we were reading the book as Sean kind of sets us up. Yep, I'm Take ready. it away. Again. <laughs> I know. I, I'm slowly trying to force Sean into being like some sort of co-host or just making it <laughs> so we have less work. Nora's notes, so I can't take any, I can't take any, well, the blurb isn't Nora's. The blurb no. is on the internet, but yeah. the notes are Nora's. Well, it's a basic outline. You can obviously 
change as you like. I'm just sort of jotting down the events as they happen. Okay. Um, so the back of the book blurb for I'm Thinking of Ending Things is um, in this deeply suspenseful and irresistibly unnerving debut novel, a man and his girlfriend are on their way to a secluded farm. When the two take an unexpected detour, she is left stranded in a deserted high school, wondering where there is any escape at all. What follows is a twisted un unravelling that will haunt you long after the last page is turned. In this smart, suspenseful and, and intense literary thriller, debutist Ian Reid explores the depths of the human psyche, questioning consciousness, free will, the value of relationships, fear, and the limitations of solitude. Reminiscent of jo Jose Saramango's, I did Google this, but my pronunciation is all over the place, uh, early work, and Michael Faber's cult classic, Under the Skin. I'm Thinking of Anything is an edgy, haunting debut. Tense, gripping, and atmospheric, this novel pulls you in from the very first page and never lets you go. Wow, they really didn't know how to describe it, did they? No. Wow, that's a horrible description of this book. Isn't that just like a cliche they put on the back of every like Stephen King novel? It grips you with the first sentence and never lets you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. I think some poor intern had to write that and they don't really know <laughs> what they were doing. To be fair, I, I do think it's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing to... to yeah. meet it's a tough you know, assessment. Tell you everything. Especially without giving it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so breaking the book down, Jake's girlfriend, who is never named, admits that she is thinking okay, about... Hey, I have to stop you. <laughs> okay, wow. These are, these are her ideas. <laughs> I'm sorry, as someone, like, working in retail and publishing, the idea of, like, the unnamed woman, you know, the girl or whatever, is such a problem in literature, just, like, a woman encompassing sort of this sort of large group of people that does not need to be named. I mean, it's like the Bechdel test. It's the idea of having female characters never needing to name them. Yeah. In this, in, this, in this particular instance, I disagree. I'm, I'm with Tom. I, I do you, viewed from the end of the book, I think it's actually quite important. But I'm giving you my emotions as I'm reading it. Okay. They're wrong. Well, then, but it's different. It's, of course, like by the time you get to the end, you have a different thought. But as I'm reading it, this is how I'm feeling. And it bothers me, the idea of not which obviously they take a different stance in the film about this, mm -hmm. but sorry, I just, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see if I can do a few more things. <laughs> she wonders if she knew from the beginning of their relationship how their story would end. They're driving to meet Jake's parents on their farm. She thinks back to when she met Jake at a local university bar's trivia night. Uh, then we jump to a kind of the first series of future tense dialogue discussing a tragic event. Each subsequent conversation reveals clues about what happened. She reflects on their relationship and their level of intimacy. She starts to talk about the caller, who has started calling her since she started seeing Jake. She also recalls a nightmare that haunted her since she was, she was younger. The caller keeps leaving her the same message. There's only one question we need to resolve. Then again, end of that chapter, we're going to jump again to the future dialogue. What did you guys think of the dialogue as you were reading? In terms of the future bits, the... Yeah, sort of them tell you, well in the future about an event that had happened. I mean, I, I, I liked it a lot. Um, I think that really, without saying too much about the overall thing, I think that really helped. Can we actually answer that question before we go any further? Are we just going to ruin this for anyone listening? Or are we going to- We ruined every book that we're talking okay, so, about. So we can just talk, we can just assume everybody knows it and we can just talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
it's going to be very difficult otherwise. because also yeah. in the film even if you've only watched the film you do still know sort of what has happened even if it's kind of different how yeah. it happens those future but, tense... but it but it works it works very differently yeah yeah it really because, good. yeah because in the book it's so much more abstract to start with the interleaving the the, the stuff that is clearly set in another time and place but you, oh, you, you you're wait, wait, wait you're saying the book is more abstract yeah no the film is more abstract no no no, the, no the, those bits of the janitor i agree the school yeah. it's like okay this is clearly a janitor in a school whereas in the book it's very people talking about an event you don't know anything about you don't know where okay. they are you don't know what's happening but you're aware that this is something different which is going to intersect at some mm -hmm. point and I, I don't know if that's a... Well, that's why I find the, the book is more grounded because of that. That you, you have this event that you know that you're aiming towards. You know, the film is kind of zigzagging a little bit all over the place, more so for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I thought those future elements in the book really did ground it, like you said, Nora. Um, it made me... It felt like more of a traditional thriller in that sense, mm -hmm. which made the kind of slightly weirder elements of kind of Jake and his girlfriend's story. Yeah. Um, I wasn't dwelling on those so much that I didn't see the twist coming because it felt more like yeah, a narrative. There are definitely discrepancies in the book, but because I knew there was this sort of climax, I kind of just kept going with it. I wasn't, yeah, yeah. they didn't kind of stop me as I was reading. Keep going, sorry. Uh, we elaborate on how smart Jake is, his love of long uh, big words, and how well-read he is. She talks about her obsession with little actions that doesn't, don't matter, such as, that, that shouldn't matter, mm -hmm. sorry, such as toothpaste left in his mouth after he brushes and the sounds his body makes after eating. Uh, then we jump to the future dialogue, graffiti on the wall. On the wall. Uh, there was only one question we need to resolve, which is the thing that Paul says. Yeah, so I tried to like put in some of the clues that you get like as there someone's having a conversation about whatever the event yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. When um on when I listen back to the audiobook, there's loads of stuff that's a clue within the main narrative as well that at the end all makes sense. Yeah, no, it's definitely like there was stuff I was reading, I was sort of like, that's weird. That doesn't really sound right. And then once you get to the end, I'm like, oh, okay, that's why it didn't sound right. Uh, she starts telling him a story about her her driving lesson she got. She and her teacher discuss how you can't be the greatest kisser. Bates thinks she kissed him, but he interrupts her before she finishes the story. She didn't kiss him. I kind of loved that conversation. I, I liked the idea that you can't be the best kisser because it has to be two people. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. That stood out to me. And we jump to the future style again. There's a, a gas mask next to the body. He had keys. Um... Back to Jake and the, his girlfriend. They have a discussion about aging. She asks him to give her a virtual tour of his lab. He starts talking about his work in ice crystals and proteins. Discussion about depression in their youth. Her phone rings again. She mentions that she uh, they had a previous girlfriend, a grad student. Then we jump to the future dialogue. This is the reveal of a body in the closet. Uh, we arrive at Jake's parents' house. Jake takes them on a tour of the farm before they go in. Shows her the sleeping sheep. She notices frozen dead sheep piled up. He tells her the story about how the pigs died because maggots were eating them alive. I did not care for this passage. No. <laughs> she sees his mum looking over from a uh, window above. 
They go inside and Jake offers her his slippers. She notices scratches on the door to the basement. Uh, she then notices a photo that he says is him, but she thinks is actually her. Then they jump to the future dialogue, then coming back to them. Uh, they go into the dining room and meet his parents. His mother is constantly smiling and wearing heavy makeup. She is barefoot and missing a toenail. His father is wearing uh, work clothes and has a band-aid above his eye. Um, his mother mentions having tinnitus, is that how you say it? Her phone rings again. Mother says they should play a game where they imitate Jake. This is so cruel, this scene. I was like, oh, yeah. Because I, you know, I don't know what's happening still at this point. So I'm just like, oh. Yeah, yeah. This is just like a really awkward meeting the, the parents scene. Yeah. And you just did, I mean, in the moment you think, my God, he must have been in like such a, an abusive household if this is sort of how they are interacting no, I with him. I didn't think abusive. I just thought it was... Emotionally uh, abusive and sort of... I thought it was like awkward family. Yeah. I mean, maybe I grew up in an emotionally abusive family. <laughs> but... I, I, I took more of that vibe yeah. as well. <clears throat> that it was like, like not knowing how to relate to each other or like... Yeah, and like the mum Being awkward around, around her as well. Yeah. They bring over dessert which has cream on but she's lactose intolerant so she can't eat it. She realises she's been chewing her nails off. She goes to the bathroom to remove the nail stuck in her teeth. This is so she's gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lots of kind of nails and... Body. Well, there's a lot of stuff about body, just in general, your mm. the physical aspect of things and how gross we are as humans. She decides to go exploring the basement. She finds a painting drawing. It looks like an image of the basement with a figure standing in it. She also finds a shelf full of old sketches. Um, she can hear arguing upstairs. Um, we jump to some future dialogue where we find out there's uh, puncture wounds, which has led to them bleeding to death. Uh, cutting back to Jake, um, she goes up to Jake's bedroom, finds a packet of photos, close-ups of body parts and picture of a woman that looks like her. Jake's father comes in, he offers her to stay the night. Uh, his mother gives her some food and a piece of paper as they are leaving. In the car, they discuss the girl in the photo that they found. He says that the man standing behind her in the photo is his brother. They discuss his mental health problems and how he used to stalk Jake. Um, oh. Gone. Well, I was just going to say, this is a moment when I felt like I was figuring out what was going on. Because when the line, when he mentions he was stalking him and he was supposed to be a full professor, which is the same as him, I was sort of like, oh, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, for you. Eve, at this point, I thought, at this point, I thought I'd figured it out, but it wasn't the twist I thought it was going to be, if that makes sense. Okay. The whole way through, I got a very strong Fight Club vibe. Like, you know, when you kind of know it's him, but you can't, you can't quite figure out how it's him. Right. You know it's him. Do you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. No, you're way smarter than me. I didn't no? get that until they, they um, told me. <laughs> way through, I was like, oh, I'm going to be really... I didn't know exactly what it was, but I just felt kind of a Tyler Durden-esque energy going on. Yeah, definitely. They decide to go to Dairy Queen. Um, it's like in their Has interest. anyone been to Dairy Queen here? <laughs> I have. Never been. Not it after is, watching that movie. It <laughs> is the only place as a teenager that's like open so late that we can go and we would just hang out in Dairy Queen mm -hmm. and get blizzards. Oh, it's open so late. I don't know. Like midnight. It, but it is. It's like this weird cultural thing. I think it's. So they decided to go to Dairy Queen because they're youthful and it's open late. <laughs> yeah. Um, two teenagers come to serve them and then a third girl arrives. She notices her horrible rash and she's as she's making their lemonades. I find it so weird that they went to an ice cream parlour and got lemonade. It sounds it. really gross. Well, I suppose it's the only non-dairy thing was the whole conversation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right, okay. yeah. 
Um, Can you though, or is he let her control him? Okay, fine. Um, the girl says that she's scared for her. Jake wants to get rid of lemonades and decides to drive to a high school nearby to dump them. Jake comes back, mentions seeing an old black pickup in the back. They start making out in the car. Jake says the name Steph, then gets spooked because he thinks he's been seeing someone watching them. He goes after them. She hears banging noises coming from inside. She decides to go in to inspect. She meets what she thinks is a janitor and asks where Jake is. She starts running around the school looking for him and then finds the janitor's office. She notices the car is gone. She realises the mystery, mysterious man must have gone, done something to Jake. She proceeds to run through the school trying to hide from him. Hey Good Looking starts playing over the school PA system. She thinks about Miss Veal, a friend of her mum's. Her mum used to give her bacon fat, but one day she came over and gave them oatmeal cookies. Her mother then got sick. This was kind of an odd thing to interject in the middle of the scene, I thought. Mm. I'm not sure if it tied into anything for me. She finds Jake's clothes in the changing room. She realised there is no way out. Um, we jump to the future dialogue. Um, the main clue we get here is he's been working at the school for 30 years. Uh, cutting back, uh, she crawls on the floor of the music room. Her nose is bleeding. Her hair had begun falling out. At this point, the narrator switches from using the singular pronoun I to the plural pronoun we. There is a point at which the narrator says, of course we're uncomfortable, we have to be. I knew it, I know it, I said it myself. I'm going to say something that will upset you now. Then we get four pages of what are you waiting that for? That did upset me. Yeah. Waste of fucking paper. <laughs> I think I told you this, didn't I? In the audio book, when you get to that passage, yeah. it is read out, um, but halfway through you switch from the female voice who's been reading the book the whole way and then a male voice interlinks and overtakes. See, that's more effective. Things. That's so good. <laughs> As a... Which which was really cool, really fucking yeah. cool. I thought that would have been good. It was just so long. Like, did you read the four pages? I did not. <laughs> I actually scanned through them to see if anything changed. Like if there was yeah. like, a little word interjected. Well, that's, again, that's why the audio book's good because like the way it's read, it's not just like the same way every time. Yeah, yeah. Like they add cadence. And, and stuff to the way they're yeah, I, I, I had a totally different response to that, but maybe I'll mention it in a minute. Well, you mentioned now we're at the point. <laughs> well, because it's it's part of my general response to the whole book was that it felt like horror movie tropes crammed in. So that's The Shining, as is so much of the rest of the high school thing. Mm. Well, Sean, read the last section. All, all work and end. no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, because the last section is just the end of the book. Yeah, um, but then we then we go to the custodian's room, reveal the she is me. He's looking at himself as he says, "I'm thinking of ending things." Stabs himself to death with a wire hair, which is a yeah, that is grim. Mummy dearest, that's awful. Thank you. I hate public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> public speaking. There's four of us reading aloud. Yeah. How uh, how is it achieved to stab yourself to death with a with a coat hanger? It would take some force, right? Like you, you go like, what are you doing exactly? Well, he like, says he uses both points. He like unfolds it and then takes both ends of the wire, and then goes, like you're more strangled than a stab. No puncture wounds, though. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. I suppose if you st stab the right artery in your neck, you would bleed oh, out. Oh, bleeding out, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Uh, a, I just think you're all tougher than I am. Clearly. <laughs> 
and or B have never had a wire coat hanger. I've cut myself on wire coat hangers many times with ease. I just remember being fascinated as a teenager by the idea you can't you can't intentionally drown yourself mm-hmm. because you have this automatic reflex that kind of stops you. Yeah, uh, and I, I sort of think if you've got to do this repeatedly, at some point you're going to run out of enough strength to yeah. do enough damage. Mm-hmm. Although that said, you're doing it in the middle of the night in an isolated school, nobody's going to find you till Monday. Well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Once you're bleeding out, that's it. And also, if you're having some kind of what is presumably like a psychotic Mental episode. Breaks, yeah. Yeah. But it, but it was, it was one more thing to me that was just like, you know, trying to make it as horror movie genre as possible because you could have just had a shotgun. Yeah, 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 totally. oh, yeah. But it's it not, as, not as effective. It's not a knife or anything. Like, it didn't have yeah. to be a knife. Well, it was interesting the bit. Remember when he's, well, she is like in a classroom and she finds the cutting knife, but the blade has been taken out? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if he had taken it out to try and stop himself from using it. Because that's a room where he had painted, I know what you're going to do. Do we think the wire hanger has any abortion connotations? Because mm. that's like a very classic, like, not classic, but you know what I mean? I like, do. Very- well, now you've mentioned it, I do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me at the time. Um, but yeah, with the twin brothers, yeah. 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 Do you think the brother is real, though? I think, I think this is what is so clever about the book, is yeah. you get to the end and you start trying to put it back together in your mind and actually a lot of it is really open to interpretation like it, it's not you have a mystery laid out in front of you that isn't actually fully solvable yeah um you can... I, I missed i missed the brother in the movie actually because you get a dog bro- instead but the brother gave me an angle to understanding mm-hmm. Because I think, and you'll have to forgive me, I read the book quite a while ago, but I seem to remember there was quite a lot of stuff in there about him being potentially quite autistic or on the spectrum and that he could have been a genius, but at some point ended up becoming so. Well, said he had social anxiety and he just couldn't talk with people anymore. He stopped. Yeah, so he ended up being a high school janitor instead. And I spent a lot of time thinking about you'll you'll probably know who this is but there was an artist that they discovered like 10 years ago who had oh, lived the, his the entire woman, life oh i think you take the woman who's the nanny who was a photographer no it's a no. guy who was it was a janitor at a high school okay no and spent and spent all his time drawing these huge murals of mm-hmm. i think fairies and children okay. but they no, discovered I... all they discovered all this work after he was dead and they were like this is amazing work okay but you know, similarly, he had a gift over here, but was unable to co- commit to the or engage with the adult world over here. So I ended thought, up working with a janitor. I thought he was <laughs> the brother when I was reading it, that he was actually just talking about himself when he was talking about the brother. And putting a lot of his explanation into him, yes. But then you sort of wonder, well, hang on, if I'm reading a text that is being generated by that person, mm-hmm then they, they have to be reasonably sophisticated in order to be able to generate the text in the first place. Well, he's academically smart, but he doesn't know, obviously, how to cope with people. So he's putting characteristics into fictional people, like creating this fictional mm. brother to reflect upon the breakdown of his life because he can't actually... Right. And it know, was all that stuff that I missed issues. in the movie. But it was that stuff that I really missed in the movie because the movie yeah. character... Doesn't... 
is is more of a cipher, like is is not really present. Hmm. But the, the book, the book essentially is. I think it only really gets away with this because it is because of its brevity. I think if it had been like twice as long, you couldn't have got away with this. But essentially, it presents you with lots of ideas and options and paths that this narrative could take, and doesn't ever say this is the only correct one. It kind of lets you kind of piece things together and, and follow the narrative as you kind of see fit, which I think, again, fits into this, into the actual story itself, which is about all of these broken narratives being kind of pushed together. And, and in my mind, at least, does so with the trappings of all of these different horror movie cliches. Yeah. As, as many horror movie cliches as we can possibly fit into one narrative. Or not, not necessarily cliches, but horror movie moments, shall we call them. The maggots yeah. and the pig, the basement with the furnace, mm-hmm. with yeah. all of the stacks of paintings that are exactly the same. Yeah. The galoshes, the, 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 yellow, <laughs> the yellow plastic raincoats. Mm. I feel like I didn't get any, maybe because I never watch horror movies, so I didn't get any of that stuff when I was reading it. I never watch I never watch horror movies, but all of that stuff felt like the 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 girl at the dairy maid who's like, it's not too late. You can turn you can go away. I'm I'm worried about you. I mean, admittedly that should be at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. which is where it usually would be, but it, otherwise it really serves no purpose if you're not trying to get the audience disturbed. Well, I suppose the did who do you think what do you think the caller was? The caller was one bit in the novel I didn't really understand, I have to say. And felt a little too contrived uh, that's not really the right word in this context but I didn't get it quite my read of it was it was so essentially we're not sure exactly who it is we're following whether it's Jake this brother whoever it is but the person who's telling us his narrative who's giving us the information I took the caller as like his subconscious trying to break through because he's having this break where he's picturing this fantasy girlfriend meeting parents and the caller is always the same. It's, it's them calling themselves essentially like yeah. in the movie, it says Lucy or whatever. And I always felt like that was him trying to break, break through, but it being like such a marginal thing and never being able to do it. That was my read on it. And I think the movie does it, does a similar thing with it, but it was there was more some yeah i I see that, but it was more something that the text was always the same um the thing about there's only one question yeah, it always felt a little i I can't quite explain myself, but like it was referencing something you never get to see mm. as though we should find out what the text was, and then if the text is is a set thing, then it's not so much the subconscious trying to communicate. But yeah, possibly just a stylistic thing that didn't quite work for me. Well, I think he, he's kind of talking to us as a reader slash himself, because he's saying, I'm scared, I feel a little crazy, I'm not lucid, which he isn't, obviously. The assumptions are right. So the assumptions we're having about him, sort of having this breakdown and not everything is real, is right. Um, now's the time for the answer. And the answer is like, is he going to kill himself? You know, what's he going to do? Uh, just one question, one qu- question to answer. That's sort of what I took, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree. I just, I think stylistically there's something about it that doesn't sit well with me in that 
the the prose of the description of everything else is very eloquent mm. um and the tone of that that the, what you've just read is very high school it, it reminds me of terrible plays that i may or may not have written when i was 15. <laughs> well, you I know did... it's that sort of didactic tone that that, that is very teenage and it's you think that's certain... like another one of these like horror movie tropes though like it's very scream like teenagers making these horrible phone calls and the like dropped calls or you're just hearing like the heavy breathing on the other end the heavy breathing for sure yeah yeah um I don't know. I, I think possibly this is this is more of a personal reaction to the kind of language than you know. It sounds like I'm the only person who really found it a bit more jarring. Although maybe it's intended to be jarring. You know, maybe I mean, if you're in, in a in you're, maybe if you're in what is to you a cozy fantasy world, maybe reality calling you from outside needs to be very much in a different tonality and, and quite jarring. Yeah, I think the phone calls were meant to be because I, I think the entire book was kind of just we were in his head. None of this stuff was really happening in any way, like tied to reality. And the phone calls were, as you said, the calls from reality trying to come in. And then obviously, and then we break into reality, you know, just at the end of the book. So we're, in, we're inside someone's, you know, mental breakdown, I guess. Well, we are, although those intersecting passages are obviously people after the event looking back on it. So those were not inside his head either. I, I mean, I really found it an engaging book in reading it. I, I do like his writing, I suppose. I didn't love the story, but I think I like it more after watching the film. Mm -hmm. Just as comparing the two of them, I appreciate the, it more. The, the, the film feels like it's trying to do something very, very different. It's not trying to achieve the same goal. And I think a lot of the changes, uh, I think the two need to be read very, very differently. I think what's interesting about the book is you get to the end and you realise what it is and you think, oh, that's, that's a really interesting conceit. And then you start thinking back to stuff and you're like, well, why that? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if the whole thing has been a journey through his mind where he's been creating characters to serve as ciphers for his relationship with his parents or his childhood or you know his failure to engage in a relationship with a woman or whatever it is um why the decisions that why make the those particular decisions because you could have gone anywhere and done anything um like the dairy queen thing just sticks out as being such a random episode i don't um, know i actually i could understand that because he was just trying I could see, and they they do that in the film, I could see him in reality, the Dairy Queen was like him interacting with these teenagers that he would be seeing at the high school because he's sort of emotionally and mentally stuck at a much younger age and him, you know, that's his sort of social I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't get that from the book. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's very clear in the film that that's what they're aiming for, but I don't remember picking up in the book book that in the film there are several bits where he's looking with longing at mm -hmm. the kids and they seem to represent you know not not something untoward he's not looking at them in an untoward way but he, he seems to be looking at them in a in a nostalgic or, or something he feels like he missed out in some way or he's harking back to a missed innocence that 
you know, he, he feels drawn back to. And that's where you get those sequences in the film of the kids, you know, dancing in, in slightly slow motion. And well, the, I, I don't remember any of that in the book. Well, there's the scene where he's talking about what actually happened on the trivia night, because I think it's meant to be a missed opportunity, because I think it's sometime later that's, in the I book. Picked, I, yeah, I felt that I felt that both the film and the book. You get the sense that, that actually happened, but he never spoke to her, yeah. and that this was his fantasy version of what would have happened if he'd been brave enough to actually speak to her. Although it's interesting that that section in the book I found quite charming. I think it mm -hmm. happens quite early on, and in terms of a cute meet between the two of them, it was quite oh, that's kind of sweet and it's kind of effective. You know, and actually, I yeah. quite like this guy because he's a bit odd, but kind of engaging at the same time. Whereas in the film, he doesn't come across as engaging at all. He comes across as just difficult and and perverse. Yeah. There's a much better job of, of building to that moment slower. I think the first chunk of the book feels... You do get these moments where they have nice interactions and you get that nice meet-cute moment, like you said, uh, whereas in the movie, you're, you're kind of like two minutes in, you're like, who is this dickhead? What is she doing yeah, going yeah. to her parents? But I think you, you, in the book, like you say, you get an, an idea of why they could possibly be in a relationship. Like you see what they like about each other or what's, you know, what would potentially bring them together. Whereas in the film, you're right. I actually think they both come across as quite unlikable. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's much more balanced in the book to start with. You, you get, you get, you get sucked in a little bit more to this mm. being a real relationship. Mm. Whereas at the film, from, from point one, you're like, get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is happening? Yeah. Break up with it right now. In, why are you, well, no, but you should both break up. Like, just, yeah. just It's not working. And then we get stuck in the car for 40 minutes, or however long it is. Other points about the book. I mean, I agree. I found their relationship very believable. I could get into them being attracted to each other. The way she describes him is quite endearing. I, you know, you get it. Other points. I mean, we well, we're could... also given a bit more background. I think she talks about having other boyfriends or she talks yes. about... She... Uh, the... So we feel like that she's more three-dimensional. Whereas yes. in the film, it's just like you're in the car. The, the, mo the, movie, has, the movie has infinitely more dialogue, but like doesn't tell you anything about the characters yeah. with that dialogue. They have like really kind of high level conversations about incredibly difficult subjects, uh, which they kind of do in the book as well, but you get a lot more of these kind of inter like more human interactions in the book than I think the, f the film gives you. She feels more real reading the book. Yeah. Like they... And I think which makes the suspense work more. I'm like, oh, I can see her in my mind. So the, the twist at the end is much harder. You're like, wait, what? Well, I, it, well, with him as well. I mean, he feels much more three-dimensional in the book. So when you get to the bit where he's just like, I'm going to drive to this school to throw away these cups. Yeah, yeah. it's weird, but it's not as weird. In the film, yeah. you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Should, should I start talking about the film? Because <laughs> I think that's what we want to talk about. Hold on, I need to bring up now my notes. I started typing them up, but I have so many, like, just little scribbles uh, angrily about this. Angrily? You, you've mentioned several times you were made, taking angry notes. What was it particularly? Frustration. What was it in particular that made you angry? 
Because no one, had cut, no one had cut the fucking film? Yeah. Yeah. They, like, this, yeah. No, the, the, the monologues that would go on for 10 minutes? <laughs> so I, um, I accidentally, well, not accidentally, I looked at Mark Kermode's review of this. Oh, um, I, I didn't read any reviews. I just don't think I could have handled it. But I, I was wandering around YouTube this morning over breakfast and I came across it, so I thought I'd listen to it. And he, he, he basically said something I think is 100% true, that Charlie Kaufman is a genius. Is, is you know, Anomaly, Anomalisa is, is just one of the best films of the last 10 years. He fundamentally is genius, but like most filmmakers, he needs somebody to cut him and to rein him in and to say, no, this is too long. You need to make this shorter and you need to get rid of that because it's not actually relevant. And this is, you know, for example, why Quentin Tarantino now makes terrible movies yeah. because nobody has the power anymore to tell Quentin, you've got to take 40 minutes out of this film oh, to make God, it better. They're so long, aren't they? Can right, hire no, me? Somebody, I am very happy to go in and tell them no. Right, nobody's, nobody's got that power anymore, so, so no one will tell them that. And, just, and there has never been a film, and this is, you know, a, a point of belief, that could not have been made better by having something taken out of it. Agreed. Uh, yeah. um, and the problem here is that Netflix, for whatever reason, are doing something very interesting, which is that they're giving a lot of filmmakers like Charlie Kaufman free reign. Like we, we want to work so with you. We want to. They were only the distributor, movie. though. By the way, they came in way after the fact, from what I read online. Oh, okay. Well, that's well. What what um, Mark Hamode was saying was that this yeah. is a Netflix film, and therefore this is why it is far too long, and you have these yeah. interminably long sequences that really should have been distilled into something equally as effective, but half the length. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good summary. Uh, so to talk about it, uh, so it was directed and adapted by Charlie Kaufman. He wrote the screenplay. Uh, so he previously directed and wrote Anomalisa, How and Why, Synodoki, New York. Can you say it? Synodoki, New York. Yeah. Far he, too long. He wrote, he wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, as well as Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and Being John Malkovich. So... As I'm oh, not, this, was, a, this like, was also something that Kermode was saying was that often when somebody else adapts his writing, yeah. they'll hone it in and that's a benefit, which is why Eternal Sunshine is such a great movie. So the only two I've movie. seen are Sunshine and John Malkovich, as I'm not, yeah. So those are my only. And you, I, you, I, have to, you have to watch Anomalisa. It is, okay. it, is, it, is, it is spellbinding. What about you guys? Have you seen? Anomalisa, the cartoon one. Cartoon, like, yeah. Animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that and Eternal Sunshine. I think that's it. Uh, I've seen Eternal Sunshine and uh, Djokovic. Yeah. Definitely, I can, I understand he has like a following, I guess, I suppose. He's created, created a name for himself for the vibe he's doing. Though I'd, I don't know if it's necessarily as original as he probably thinks he is. I feel like there's definitely like a little lad groupie of filmmakers that have a similar tone to what they're doing oh my god <laughs> that, is the, that is the only time anyone has ever described charlie calvin as part of a lad group of filmmakers. <laughs> um yeah you haven't watched synodoke in york okay so it stars jeffy Plemons. oh and by the way i actually thought the performances were really good yes yeah yeah so jesse Plemons, who was in the irishman he was like the, wasn't he like the shit son who uh, is in the car 
Yeah, yes. let's not reference. Let's not reference the Irishman. Jesse Plemons was in Friday Night Lights. So that's all okay. you ever need to know. Oh yeah, with his buzz cut. <laughs> he was also so he's in Fargo. He was in Vice as well. He, he was in is, Black Mass. Yeah, he is Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Like the voice, the face. Just, Jesse Plemons is a, is a fucking great actor. But sure. it's kind of freaky. I don't know. When I wa- was watching it, I just felt like he was a younger version of him. So he plays Jake. So then you have Jesse Buckley, who is also in Fargo. Misbehavior, sure. uh, which is a recent film, uh, and Ter- Chernobyl. Cool. So she's called Young Woman on for the cast. It's her name. <laughs> then you have Tony Collette. Because she's a woman. She doesn't need a name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all the same. So somewhat, t- some of the points of the film later on, though, isn't it? <laughs> the, the name's changeable. Yeah, very easy to swap out, you know, hairstyle, clothing, names. Tony Collette, who I don't really need to say what she's been in. Everyone knows Tony Collette. She's amazing. She plays the mother, David Thewlis, who also was in Fargo, <laughs> plays the dad. And though upsettingly, when I was looking at his IMDb page, he has listed as his next two films, the next two Avatar films, which just makes me lose a little respect for him. But okay. Apparently they finished shooting yesterday. <laughs> God. Thank God that's not based off a book. I don't have to see it. Then you have Guy Boyd, who plays the janitor. I looked him up. He's been in a lot of TV stuff. Like he's definitely like a constantly working actor, does like all the law and orders and stuff like that. And then, interestingly, two other mentions. Oliver Platt plays is the voice at the end, which I love him. And the voice of the pig. Yeah, at the end. Yep. And then Abby Quinn, who plays the third girl in the Dairy Queen, I recognized her because she's in the new Mad About You TV series. <laughs> You, you know what that show is, right? Never mind. I'm alone. It's okay. Never mind. So also, Me just either. to mention, Ian Reed is listed as a co-producer. I don't know what that means by the involvement he would have had in it. But obviously, it seems like he was on board with what was it's, happening. It's typically an honorary. Yes. Uh, I, I have a few co-producer credits and have done nothing on those films. Okay. But, but, he's, I, not, but he's not saying it's shit. You no, know, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of the point is to get his name on there somewhere. So it's, it's approved by even, yes. you know, you've got the rights to do it. But you still want the author to say, yes, I like this. I'm on board with this. So it was released on the 4th of September on Netflix. So they're listed as the distributor. And then it was produced by Likely Story and Project, Projective Testing Service, which are both like Charlie Kaufman linked production companies. I don't know if it was meant to originally come out in cinemas. It would be sort of interesting how would it would have read on a cinema audience, but I think it works as a Netflix film as it's a little bit messy. So we open with wallpaper, lots and lots of wallpaper. Oh, I'd forgotten the wallpaper. Yes. That, that we see later. Yes, we see lots of it. He definitely mm. vibes about, about this. So you get these sort of house shots and then you open into this like snowy small town, very sort of middle America. And then you flash to this man who's looking outside, talking to himself. And already I'm like, oh, well, you've ruined the plot. I know what's happening, kind of. So you see him looking down 
on what seemingly is her as young woman is waiting on the street and she's sort of looking up longingly into the snow and then she gets picked up in the car by Jake. You get, when they're first getting flashes to him, at first I thought it was the dad. It's not until later that I realized that it's the janitor. I don't know if you knew who he was right away. I think I did because I remember saying like, oh, they're just giving away the whole plot up front. Okay, I was kind of confused about what the goal of that was. But then I did also, if I hadn't read the book, I wouldn't have a fucking clue what was going on the whole time, so. Well, that was a question I kept asking myself, Mm. was if I hadn't, if I hadn't read the book, would I be joining these dots in the same way? Mm -hmm. Or would I be just baffled? So we're flashing to the janitor as they're sort of back and forth as they're talking to each other in the car. And then Jake mentions that his mum is sick and sort of not to expect as much. And then he, so he calls her Lucy. We're going to start making a tally of all the different names and careers she has. <laughs> so, her, and then he starts uh, quoting Wordsworth and he sort of goes on this very, very long monologue about how amazing Wordsworth is. And then her phone rings and it shows her name calling her. And then they mention also that she is a scientist. So check one for career and name. And then you get to the flash of the janitor cleaning in a high school. And then that sort of clicks in that the guy who's watching them is the janitor. She then starts reciting a poem for a very, very, very long time called... Such such a good poem. It is a great poem. I really enjoyed oh, I love the poem. This. I love this poem so much. I had to go and look it up after. I, it, I stopped the movie, actually, to oh. find out what it was. I didn't, I didn't mind the and Amazon don't have a copy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tried to buy her. I tried to buy the poet's book. I mean, the book in the film is a library copy. It's not even a copy that he owned. Sorry, what were you saying? I was Tom? just going to say this was this is one of the only kind of. I think this was the only long extended kind of long monologue scene which engaged me for the entirety of it. I thought this was like a really great bit of performance by. by yeah, I thought it was really amazing. great. Mm-hmm. Very, very mesmeric, very yeah. charismatic. I love this scene a lot. Very watchable. But I would, I would just put a marker in. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about all of these additional bits of art that yeah. Kaufman has put in: the poetry, the paintings, mm-hmm. and fucking Oklahoma, <laughs> which I've never watched. And after this, I went and read the the, the summary, and I'm horrified. Okay. But we'll get back to that. So I also noticed, so as there's a little bit of this in the book and that it also sort of foreshadows why the relationship doesn't work. But in the film, there's, it's constant in that he's constantly interrupting in her. There's no connection in the conversation they're having with each other. There's so much disconnect, just the two of them. Even the pauses between conversation points don't feel natural. Like nothing about their interaction feels comfortable. Yeah. He's just not listening when she has a question. He kind of gets upset because he doesn't want to answer the question and sort of ignores her constantly. So that's really front and center in that this is a bad relationship, like right away in the car, as she's saying, I'm thinking of ending. But, but arguably, arguably it's, it's because it's a film, not a book. With the book, we have so much of her voice. 
carrying it along that it intersperses things with the film it just puts the dysfunctionality of the relationship that without that without their dialogue there is nothing else oh, well, I, it's I, so, so off-putting i do like the line though from the poem coming home is terribly lonely and you know it's just it's talking about his life really and how lonely and depressed he is so it is a great poem for i suppose the story that he's trying to tell and then there's a, another conversation after this where they talk about viruses and wanting to live and like not knowing, you know, what is their purpose? Is it that they're just set up to live that way or what their feelings are? And it's, and this is a continual thread and it's the idea of like mental health and sort of any sort of sickness or things that you have, you know, they are their own entity and it's the idea of her being his anxiety and his issues sort of embodied and she wants to exist even though she's destroying him <laughs> no no that, that is that is an interesting read that had not occurred to me okay i just the, these little lines about that and there's a there's a few other points i'll point out as we go along as her you know mental health being an entity in itself you're like if you're, you're he feels kind of schizophrenic and it's sort of Maybe it's two personalities in the sense, but so then you see the sign, the Tulsi Tulsi Town Center, I think it is, and it says "Come join me." I think is what the slogan is, and it's this very gauche or circusy sign when they're entering into the area that his family lives, and then they arrive at the house. And then you have the mom waving from the window like a loon. She's like smiling and waving like a crazy person. And he says, he looks up at her and he kind of gets uncomfortable, I think, quite straight away, because obviously what he's about to be confronted in with going inside. So they decide to stretch their legs and go around the property and they go into the barn. And well, no, no, no. He's, he's quite insistent. Yes. It's he's... not that they decide to stretch their legs. He's like, Sorry. no, I'm going to show you around first. He forces she's her. Like, yeah. She doesn't want to. And he's like, it's really important. I really want to do this. Yeah. Which so, I think is important when you then come to the pig. But. Yeah. So he shows, first they go and see the sleeping sheep. Well, not sleeping, they're awake. In the book, they're sleeping. And you see they're talking. He starts the conversation where they're talking about how hard it is to live on a farm. And then she sees the dead sheep on the side. And she tries to ask him about it, but he gets kind of curt with her. And he says, it doesn't matter. They're frozen anyway. And then you segue to the pig. So you have this sort of blackened spot in the hay. And he says, we used to have pigs. And then he talks about the fact that they're, the maggots were, you know, eating them from the inside out and how the father had to get rid of them and how hard life is. And again, the maggots, I think, represent what is happening to him this illness or whatever you know, he's dealing with, the psychosis of it, is eating him from the inside out and slowly destroying him. You know, the maggots, you know, need, need him to survive, but they're also killing him at the same time. Then we go to the house. I think that's it. There's nothing else yeah. in that. No, that. no, that's it. He's going around screaming for his parents and gets the, sort of the wallpaper of the different rooms. Oh, and he also gives her the slippers. And then there's lots of like little things like he's sort of sort of jamming this drawer and you see all the thermoses inside of it, which mm -hmm. you get as a reference later on. 
and they're Wait, waiting. I didn't, I didn't get it as a reference. Remember the janitor at the end of the day when he's about to leave to go to the truck, he picks up one of the thermoses in his little room to take back with okay. him. So this is okay, I'm, I, small, I missed it. It's yeah. okay. It's a really small detail. They're waiting for the parents in the living room. And then you flash to, and I actually, I really like the shot where the janitor is wheeling the mop and bucket and you see the students dancing in the hallway as he's passing them. She then notices the scratches on the basement door and he, she asks about the basement and he says, it's like a hole in the ground. It isn't anything. And there's this whole interaction about her, like, it's like scary movie trying to scare him. And that's the idea of like the horror films. And then he says the scratches are from the dog, Jimmy. And this is when it really starts to kind of go a little bit too gimmicky for me when the dog just like kind of snaps and appears. And he then is like shaking like really weirdly, like a sort of almost like a comp- computer glitch, I feel like. Like his, his mind is sort of spazzing out because he, he, things aren't fitting in anymore together. He can't run as smoothly as things are being questioned. Yeah, I think, I think the dog could have been handled a little better. I liked the idea. What I thought it was trying to get at was that a lot of these details of how home should be or how life should be, that's what the image is he's got in his mind, and that's all he's got. So he's got a picture of the dog shaking itself off, but he hasn't got anything else. Mm-hmm. So that's all you ever see of the dog is the dog shaking itself off, which is very fucking weird. Yeah. But it's because we're in this simulation of an environment that it somehow that it sort of lingered on it for too long. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a bit awkward. Know, yeah. Than, yeah. So the parents come down. I'm surprised they kept David Thewlis English, but I suppose that doesn't super matter. I noticed that. I, I, I was that. also curious. I actually said to Sean, is he English in the book? Have I just completely missed that he was meant to be? But it was a strange choice. Because he can definitely do an American accent. Hmm. Maybe he's more expensive with an American accent. Just <laughs> <Charges> more. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I did. That kind of took me out, I think, seeing that. This also, everything really flips and shifts, I think, starting from here. It's a little faster paced and think how he's constantly changing the sceneries. And you get in the background, like the audio mixing is quite interesting. So you get it's like the static of a record that's off finished its song in the background. So there's this on the lead, it's on it's on what's called the lead out groove. Okay. Which is the, the bit in the middle. So yeah. it just keeps turning around, yeah. So you have that in the background, which I suppose represents the mother's what's it called? The tetanus, tetanus, the tonight tinnitus. 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 So it's like the whispering in the background. Because there are moments of some, like people whispering, I forget the different lines, of she'll hear sort of a whispered line every once in a while. I think I missed, I think I missed a lot of the audio subtlety because I was listening with headphones and I don't think they it came across. I was just listening with these headphones. <laughs> you got young ears for ears though, Nora. Yeah, exactly. But what is the thing that app where the like the I can still hear the dog whistle? You can't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> My dad used to turn that on. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> I can't hear it. Exactly. Do you know what we're talking about? 
I know theoretically what you're talking about. I'm not quite sure what Apple have got to do with it. But no yeah. app. There's an app where you can play oh. a dog whistle. Okay. And right. If you're and oh, old, oh. old people can't hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, used, we used to do it in school. I, uh, I, I'm not sure I like what you're getting at here, but fine. <laughs> we'll let it pass for now. So then you're in the dining room and it's suddenly like this much warmer tone. The parents are the mom's a little more put together and less awkward the dad's hair changes so in the first scene it's a little bit browner and then suddenly it's older I think he's a little longer or something his hair in the next scene and then she's a painter now and she does landscape paintings and they have this whole conversation about her artwork and they mention how Jake used to paint. Then she misses a call from Lucy and she doesn't answer it. And then, so she's showing her, them her paintings on her phone. And then she sees that the mom is like missing a toe. And then they talk about how she's studying quantum physics as well. Suddenly she, Oh, also, she's changed her sweater and the sort of floral dress that she's wearing underneath. They're quite similar, but they're just a little bit different patterns. Jake kind of freaks out at his mom because she's sort of asking questions about something. And I think essentially he doesn't really have the answers or she doesn't have the answers because she's a figment. So he doesn't know what she would say. So he kind of like slams in on the table. The whole awkward pause. And then she tells the st- trivia night story about how they met and I thought it was kind of interesting that so she like has a few moments of stuttering because I it's I feel like again it's him not knowing how the story should work so she's like kind of glitching out about it and in this version of the story he asks her out so he's making the character a little more bold in his imagination I think and she also says a line that it feels like it's forever. Like she, even though it's in theory supposed to only have been a month because it doesn't really exist in time, mm-hmm. this relationship that this fantasy has been forever almost. And then we get the film within a film. <laughs> so you have the janitor who's in a classroom and he's watching this movie of, it's sort of meant to be a stereotypical rom-com of a waitress and this guy in the diner pronouncing his love for her and he like does something that gets her fired and then he and then she's like but you said you love me right and then they live happily ever after and it's directed by Robert Zemeckis and produced by Gerald Kramer which I did look uh, up this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I almost went to look it up. And then when I saw that actress later in the movie, I was like, oh yeah, like, fine. That's, it. That's a thing for the movie. So it's because when they were editing it, the film editors used just as like uh, to fill in the blank because it originally didn't have anything on it. They used the credits from Contact, the Robert Zemeckis film. And then... Charlie Kaufman loved it so much. And then he asked Robert Zemeckis, could he use his name for this? And he said, yes, he has nothing to do with it. So, I mean, yeah. So we're getting very meta here. The film within a film within a film and then referencing the film. So 
then you finish that and then the mum hair changes. So we're back in the dining room and it's a little bit, the, there's a lot of like color shifting. So it's a little bit grayer, uh, saturated and her hair is like really frizzy and unkept and she looks more unkept. And then Lucy's outfit changes and she gets pearls. So she's looking a little more sort of cliche, nice girl. Makeup on in this scene as well. Oh yeah. Because they start calling her Louisa at one point. Yeah. Lucia. That, no, Louisa's right. She's a waitress named Louisa, but that's not until they're leaving. Oh, okay. But I just thought, because I wondered, I didn't quite twig that they weren't just calling her Lucy as short for Louisa. Yeah. But I I think it's because she's called, in between that, she gets called Yvonne. Oh, which is nothing like those. So that's for me. That's is that not what the waitress is called in the film, though? It is what the waitress is called in the film. She then gets a phone call from a caller called Yvonne. Yeah, and they call her Yvonne as well. Yeah. So this is yeah. So this is when they're getting dessert, and she overhears the parents fighting in the kitchen, and then there's like another thing with Jimmy but you never see him, you just hear him shaking and she's like petting him. So for me, this moment is, it really feels like he can't make up his mind about how this would work, essentially, like how she would exist if he brought home this fictional character. So he's, he's essentially self-editing himself, like these little changes, like adding pearls, changing how his mother looks, how they would respond. So it's everything sort of very quickly, these tiny little shifts. And I'm sure there's stuff I missed as well. So they're looking at the photos and she sees a picture of a young child and she can't recognize who it is. And he says, it's me, but she says, but that's me. And the mom comes in and she talks about having this ear infection and the idea that it feels like she's constantly being whispered to, which I take for that he actually has this ear, this type of infection, that he constantly hears this whispering and being tortured, that these are all his ailments and issues. Because at the end also they mention the, the future dialogue people, that not the future, well in the book they mentioned that, so I might be, wrong to tie these together because in the book they talk about that he had like dairy and food problems which her the character had those problems so this these are all bits of his personality that he's spreading out into these characters yeah i i read both the book and movie in in that way but all these kind of character traits are all elements of him this is when she gets i had a slightly different take with the parents i spent a lot of time trying to figure out if he was trying to deal with issues that he had had with his parents mm. okay. through yeah. this, through this thing, or whether it was parts of himself that he was projecting onto them, I, I uh, felt much more in the movie that it was him reflecting on what actually happened to his parents because you get a lot more range of timelines with his mm. parents, whereas in the book you kind of just see them from this one evening. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it being as far advanced as her in the, the hospital bed as yeah, you've seen yeah, in, yeah. in the film. Did you even get him with the stickers on things? No, you didn't get any of that. Yeah, you don't get any like aging of the parents in the book, so 
Are his parents alive? In the book? No, I, neither. No. I, I don't think they are. Well, I, yeah, I think they're dead. Is there, any, is there any information? Or are we just making an assumption one way or the other? I think, I think we're... My assumption is that he did live at home and he was taking care of them to the point of their deaths, like he was their caretaker. Because when he says that line, when he's feeding the mom in the wheelchair and he's, he says, you know, I like that someone's seen me do this because she says, oh, it's so good that you're doing mm. this. And he's like, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not why I'm doing it, but to be See, recognized I, that I'm doing it. I also wonder if the pigs and the maggots is also a reference to life on the farm mm -hmm. and his family as well as the animals mm. yeah. because he it's the sort of like he can't abandon he has a father who has dementia and a mother who's dying you know he's also pulled in by that as well yeah so this is when so she switched to being Yvonne which I'll add another tally and she listens to the message which you get the message that's in the book on the phone and it's for this, there was such a giveaway because it was definitely Jake's voice, I think, giving the message. Didn't pick up on it myself, but you may well be right. Sounded, it sounded like a layer of his voice and the janitor's voice, so you couldn't mm -hmm. quite tell who it was. That makes sense. Then the mother slips when they're talking. She says, do you remember when we had your 50th birthday? And he's like, no, 20th birthday. So... I think is referencing the fact that he's much older. We're into Lucia, who is studying gerontology, I think it was. And it's the concept of aging. So you're studying aging. Yeah. So another one. The, then suddenly everyone disappears and she's alone in the living room. And her outfit changes again. And... For me, this also like I don't I got this vibe throughout, and this is definitely a reference to the ending that it feels like a play. A lot of the film, just the way the monologue and speeches and the way people are talking. Yeah, a lot of dinner scenes in that world as well. Like yeah, which is, I mean, I think I think that feels fairly familiar to me tonally from the director's work in general. Okay. Like a lot, I don't know what his background, I don't know what his background is, you know, pre-film. I don't know if he comes from a theatre background, but, you know, like Aaron Sorkin, a lot of his work feels staged mm. in that, in that way, because that's how they learn to write. Yeah. Uh, but with this, with this, because we come to the theatre at the end, it wouldn't be out of place to suggest that maybe a lot of it is over theatricalized because it is supposed to all be on the stage of sorts. Yeah. So then Jimmy, the dog, comes back and she decides to go upstairs and you see the labeled door that says Jimmy, Jake's, sorry, Jake's childhood bedroom. Did you also see the, um, the messed up geometry? There's another flight of stairs. No. Well, there's the bit at the yeah. end, the, the scene there's after a, there's this. The, there's the flight upstairs that she goes up. Yeah. Through a door, through, then there's a door on the ground floor. And oh. just through that door, there's another flight of stairs going up. Okay. Like in a totally, like, why would you have two flights of stairs basically going to the same place? Yeah. Well, I suppose the layout of his house in his mind doesn't necessarily work in how the characters... No, it, it immediately made me think of that there's, um, there's a documentary about cons uh, conspiracy theories about The Shining. 
but one one person spent a lot of time uh, mapping out the the geometry of the of the Overlook Hotel. Yeah. yeah. And, and ba basically, their conclusion is one of the reasons it feels so weird is because it's impossible. Yeah. In that the the number of times the camera moves around, you wouldn't be in that. You'd be over here. Oh, this, this room couldn't exist so I sort of felt like they were trying to do that make you feel unnerved with architecture that wouldn't exist yeah you know the thing where she's walking down the stairs like after this yeah yeah which was obviously that it's a, I guess Asher but yeah 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 then she, she sort of looks around the room and you see the urn for Jimmy the dog and then you also see all the books which are what they've talked about and what yeah. she's done in her professions, like the chemistry, the Wordsworth book, and then you find well, and, the, and the Pauline the Pauline Kale book, which is the only reason I realised later he was quoting Pauline Kale in the car. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. There's tons of that. I I should have like I want I should have paused the scene and you probably could write down all the different books and there would have been lines from all of them as well as like. Yeah. The films as well, and I think like VHSs and CDs and stuff he had in his room. And then you have the poetry book, which is the poem that she's, you know, said that she wrote yeah. and recited. And then the dad comes into the room and he's a much older version of the dad. So he's sort of hunched over and he's sort of stumbling over himself and you reveal that he has dementia and this sort of replicates the chat that they had in the book as well, where he says that they can stay if she wants. And then she crosses the hall and she sees Jake feeding the mom and she's much older and she's in a wheelchair. And that's this whole conversation where he's like, I like that someone's seen and recognized what I'm doing. So at this point, I feel a little bit exhausted I think with the film because I feel like it's completely plateaued in building any sort of suspense because I'm like you've there's no you know mystery anymore about what's happening there's no more climax that you can go to and I'm I, I, was, uh, I was kind of with it until here okay well I passed here I was I think I, I think that I was I kind of with it till almost the end, and then everything went. I think, I think, I think, I think I agree with you that pacing-wise, it's plateaued. But I do go back to the question of how someone who hasn't read the book is going to view it. Would would they have immediately jumped to the conclusions we've jumped to? Probably not. Yeah, I feel like it's point. so obvious I, though, because it's well, even more. But you'd, but you'd want to sit down and think about it, surely, for a couple of minutes. You'd probably get to there. But you, you wouldn't necessarily, you, you're in a film, you're still watching, you're probably still going with it to an extent. Yeah. There's the shot, which, you know, I thought was very pretty, where you have the snow that's just falling on the car when you look mm -hmm. outside. So that was, you know, nice enough. Uh, Actually, it's funny, I, th I think that's where it started losing me. <laughs> just that one shot. No, I, I think because it was so surreal and yet so unremarked on. Well, she looks, like... it, it, it's what it is, and she moves on. I'm like, well, that's yeah. what I mean. Like the whole bit of them being in the house is so surreal. Like the characters changing their outfits and things like that, and the dog kind of coming out of nowhere. So then this is the bit where she's repeatedly walking down the stairs in sort of a never-ending staircase, sort of talking to herself. That felt very gimmicky to me. Then she's Louisa the waitress, and he talks about how they met when she was serving him and gave him a Santa Fe burger at the diner, which is straight from the film that he was watching. 
So he's essentially making her up from films that he's like rom-com films of what a relationship is supposed to be, how they're supposed to have met. So that trivia scene could be a reference to a film of characters having met in theory. You get a switch. The mom is sort of like this 50s housewife version of her as much younger. And she talks about Jake as a child. So this is the version of her when he would have been little and he, she gives her a nightgown that's covered in his baby food and asks her to go into the basement to clean it. And she goes downstairs. There's clothes already in the wash. And guess who the clothes are? The janitor's outfit. And if you haven't gotten it by now, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you. <laughs> you see the painting, the painting room. You wanted to talk about this, that you see the sort of posters of the painter that were supposedly her paintings and then him trying to replicate those paintings. Oh, I didn't, I didn't necessarily take that away from it. Um, I meant more that it's interesting, the things that Kaufman has decided to insert in terms of, you know, references, poems, okay. music, uh, you know, art, art, because this is somebody, I can't remember what their name is, but I looked them up. Whereas I think if I remember correctly in the book, it's a much more weird basement in which there are lots of canvases essentially depicting the same scene of the basement, but with a slightly changing figure on one side. Yeah. And the basement's much more, that hole in the ground is described kind of like more dirt dig out. Whereas in the movie, it is much more like walls and like utilities. and. Yeah, in the book, I, f I felt it was supposed to be Freddy Krueger's basement. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a furnace. I'm, I haven't seen those movies, but I know there's a basement, I know there's a burner. The furnace. Um, I felt like it was creepier in the book. Certainly, the basement. Yeah. Like you described it. It felt like a fully, fully furnished, you know, basement in. Hmm. Film. Yeah, it's a terror. It's a terror basement in the country. Is what yeah. That is. Whereas in the film, there's a washing machine and some paintings. Yeah. She gets a call from Louisa, who is her name for that moment, and then she goes back upstairs, and then you have the mum, who's sort of in like a hospice type a bed you would normally have if someone's sort of at the end of their life and she looks like she's almost dead he's watching her and he's sort of crying and then you get a young version of the dad who comes out so this is sort of I guess who the dad would be when he was a kid they leave and they're putting the chains on the car to drive back she's in the car and she's very confused about the sequence of events and he says that it's her drinking is that the dad gave her too much booze and that's why she's not remembering it correctly and then they go on this huge monologue about this film called woman under the influence it's a Pauline. he's quoting pauline kyle from the okay book. she starts smoking and her voice but sorry 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 just yeah. quick question did anyone notice her drinking at all she had a glass remember she's like chugging the she glass did. which is I, 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 when they got to that line, I couldn't remember her actually having drunk anything at all. It felt a bit weird, but as long as she was in there. That's thinking. the poster of the film is the shot of her with the high ceiling, the two windows. And in that scene, she's chugging a glass of red wine, which, what is supposedly red wine, but that's the only time you see her drinking. Right. Her voice completely changes. She kind of gets quite posh, almost English sounding. And she's sort of like chain smoking the car. And she is turns into him from the beginning almost in the way she's speaking I felt like in this very sort of pompousy overeducated 
you know, I'm very well read and I want you to know it. So I'm going to make all these obscure references and use lots of big words. I mean, is there an interesting sort of reversal of roles happening at this point? Because earlier we commented on how much we were suckered in or sucked into the delivery of that poetry by Jesse Buckley mm -hmm. as, a, as a sort of tour de force of performance. And here he attempts essentially the same thing. He's taking someone else's work and trying to pass it off as his own by equating it without attribution. And yet it's just deathly dull and immensely yeah. pretentious and very I, annoying. I found out about and, three seconds into this scene, just couldn't. And then almost like, almost then she almost reacts against it as though she's then proving a point against that. It feels like it becomes combative, but in a, in a weird sort of one-upmanship sort of way. Mm. Yeah, I didn't really like this scene. It, it just felt, it was overwrought. Like he made his point about this already. Mm. I mean, I think the point was the idea because there's the line I did write down where she says someone for everyone. And it's again, reiterating the sort of loneliness and his strong desire for companionship, which we get. So then we, oh, uh, so he reflects on because there's a, like a flash of the school and he talks about the kids that he sees at school and how they carry the sort of outsiderness or the trauma of being in a school and not belonging aura, he describes it as sorry yeah he sees them in the in the town later yeah and he, he sees the same yeah so then they decide to go get some ice cream at It Is Not Dairy Queen. And I'm wondering if this might be like they couldn't have used Dairy Queen. So they call it Tulsi Town because that doesn't exist when I tried well, to they it do. Up. Well, they, they use the advertising as well. So presumably they could. That's not get real, it. I don't think. I'll double check. No, 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 no. But, but they presumably if they this advertising and this imagery, okay. so they created it to work as a whole. No, it's, I suppose that's fine. It just feels like, again, I don't know how necessary it was. So they go to the ice cream shop that's literally in the middle of nowhere. And it's like a, just a drive up thing. And then you have this, these two like giggling blondes at the window, which again was very sort of David Lynch type of surrealist. Well, although we, recog we recognize them immediately. So we know that we're into another sort of repetition. Of, they're, they're from the high school. Yeah. yeah. So we recognize them as the girls that we are seeing throughout. Yes. So it's, it's not like they are isolated incidents. They're clearly connecting to the broader themes. Well, I just meant surreal in a sense of their interaction with them. Like they're not interacting with them yeah. at a human well, level. Yeah. What, what are they doing here? Why, yeah. why would they be here? But there's good, you know, yeah. So, and then you have this brunette who's covered in rashes who comes out and says oh she says and i found this line quite interesting quite poignant and she you know she's scared for her and you can stay here meaning that yeah mentally that not to go further because you will get to the point of sort of destruction and ending things and that's the sort of brain trying to protect him i guess and not going further in this sort of fantasy yeah Quite, quite, quite question though, quite, quite an important question. Mm -hmm. Is is Jesse Buckley's character his imagination, or is is the male character his imagination, or are they both his imagination? It doesn't really matter. 
they're both his imagination because he's a janitor. He's not. He's neither of them. Right, reality. but when the, he was but, him when he was younger, right? That's what I took from it. I mean, it's who he saw himself being. It wasn't who he really was. It's the so is, is the girl at Dairy is the girl at Dairy Queen warning him not to go any further because it only ends in one place? Yeah. Or is she is she warning by the version of his subconscious not to go any further because it doesn't end in a good place? But the male character who's standing off and refusing to participate in the conversation in any form is that him attempting to stop? I don't know. It just kind of feels because later on we sort of have we've been watching the female character all the way through as the protagonist, mm-hmm. and then and then once we get to high school we have a total reversal. Yeah, well that's the point is you can read it any either way really. Okay. Also, this made me question that I don't think the phone calls as a concept work in the film at all. I would have gotten rid of them personally. I don't think they really lended anything to the story. Mm. I don't think they were necessary. No. Yeah. Yeah. Then they're in. Oh, and then there's the shot where he's gra- he's paying for the drinks, and you see that he has rashes on his hands. Yeah. So again, he is her. She's just another animation of him. They're in the car, and then they start talking about David Foster Wallace. <laughs> you know, every guy makes them feel really smart after they've finished a David Foster Wallace book. <laughs> Wait. Does the fact I haven't read a David Foster Wallace book make me not smart? Yeah, exactly. You don't oh, have the, the self-importance to, you know, be when you get to say, I finished a David Foster Wallace book. Look at me. I've read Thomas Pinch and I'm all good. Okay, there you go. It's very much the your boyfriend meme on Twitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where they're like, your know. boyfriend means, it's like, basically like cliche guys who think they're really clever and important. And yeah. they you know, it's all the guy who tries who wants to teach you things, who wants mm-hmm. to educate you and open your mind. And maybe you've already read those things, but he doesn't realize that. Well, it's also like On the Road, I think, is another one of those books. Yeah. It's definitely like a group of those lad books, I think. So, and then they start talking about suicide. So, it's obviously leading, you know, more closely to that. So, this whole conversation that, you know, even if you don't know David Foster Wallace's books, you know that he committed suicide and has suicide becomes the bigger story than the person's actual life, which is sort of talking about him. Then you get a flash to the actress from the film and then he flips out about the cups in the car and then her name is Ames slash Amy. And she talks about how she grew up on a farm. So they're kind of, they're closing in on each other, essentially. Yep. And then she, there's this line about how there's no objective reality, which is very much what's happening. And then also she is now a physicist. She's, there's the shot where his hand is on the wheel and you see his hand is like all wrinkled and old. Yep. So it's just sort of reality, I feel like, seeping in or it's like the end peak of the breakdown. You arrive at the high school, you see the truck out in front then he goes to throw away the drink and it's much quicker in that he like comes back right away. They start talking and then they start kissing and then he flips out and thinks that someone's watching them. He leaves her in the car and I do think she played the scene well in like when she's freaking out, but the whole bit of the monologue of herself in the car was just, again, it's like these very long overwrought speeches that yes it's very good bit of writing but 
you've made your point 10 times over to stop like hitting me over the head with it. And she runs out and she sees that the trash has been filled with all the burr drinks. Mm-hmm. And then she goes into the high school hallway and she sees the janitor cleaning and she rants um, about this guy creeping on her when she was at a trivia night at a bar 40 years ago, but it's like nothing happened. It's like me remembering, trying to remember a mosquito that bit me, you know, whenever, which is, you know, very much, I can see that. She, I think she's the one who says the line that it's safe in here. This is like her little bubble. And then they hug each other and, you know, he's tried to hand her the slippers. And this is where I wanted to movie the end. And I would have forgived it if it ended right here. And it would have been fine. <laughs> it doesn't. And then they meet multiple versions of themselves. They have them staring across from each other at the hallway. And then like sort of similar looking people come out. And they start dancing. And it's suddenly a musical. <laughs> And you have this dance sequence, and I really, really wanted to do the skip 10 seconds thing on Netflix. You would have been skipping a lot more than 10 seconds. <laughs> I Not that 10 seconds. I resisted skipping. <laughs> they keep dancing, and then they get married in the middle of the high school hallway. And then the dancing version of the janitor comes and separates them and then there's angry dancing and then she runs away and then there's a fight between the two guys and he stabs the jake dancer and there's flying cloths of red steals the girl away the girl looks sad at the dying jake and then leaves him to die alone in the middle of the high school and then you have the janitor then cleaning up the high school and then he gets in the car and then he starts having the breakdown in the car and you see this animated film, which is an advertisement for the Tulsa town ice cream place. And then there's a pig, a talking animated pig. And- yes, there is. <laughs> oh God. Literally my favorite bit. <laughs> I was just completely gone by this point. And the pig says, come with me, come with me, janitor. Come into the, you know, never follow the animated pig. It's just what I'm learning from this. Oh, so, no, always follow the animated pig. So then they go into the high school. Suddenly, Jake is winning the Nobel Prize on the set of Oklahoma. And everyone has really bad aging makeup. And he, they all... And then he starts singing Lonely Room, which is a song from Oklahoma. Then everyone claps. And then you see a snow-covered high school. And then it's the fucking end of the film. (laughs) Except there's a very, very brief post-credit moment. When? Allegedly. I I heard about that. I looked for it and I didn't find anything. Uh, Allegedly, if you listen right at the end, you can hear the sound of the ignition and the car turning. Hey. So apparently he's not dead. That's shit. Or is he not that it really matters. What really bothered me was Oklahoma. Um, I've never seen Oak. I've I've never seen Oklahoma. No, so me neither. 
in my in my general interest to look up all the things that have been put into this film, the poems, the art, everything else, I looked up the song and then the song led me to the description of the musical. And it's horrific. Tell us. Um, immediately before this song that we have in the film, mm. the, lead, the lead guy, the hero guy in Oklahoma has gone to see his love rival, mm-hmm. who's a weird loner who lives alone in this shack. And has, yeah, and has basically persuaded him how good it would be if he killed himself because then everyone would realise how much they loved him. And this is now his song following this, following this moment. It is horrific. Like, I have a serious problem with fucking Rogers and Amstein. Um, but putting that to one side, I was, I think this is the most interesting bit in terms of talking about the adaptation of the book to the film. Because at this point, clearly Charlie Kaufman is off piece doing his own thing. So much, so much else of the film, you could, you know, you get what he's doing. He's just doing too much of it. And you just want him to just do it faster. It hits us over the head a little bit less. You don't need quite so many beats to achieve the same thing and a little bit more subtlety and, and fine. But suddenly it's gone all very odd. And I sort of got the sense that, yeah, fine. The janitor is having a breakdown and he is uh, potentially recasting himself both as the lead or a lead of the musical that he can't participate in that he's been watching from a distance throughout as the kids have been practicing but it's also him speaking about himself as being you know lonely and potentially now that you know when I kill myself maybe finally people will realize I had some value um but there were bits of it that I just didn't understand, like the total artificiality of the ageing makeup, what the, what the point of all that was. If it wasn't horror movie cliches again, which yeah. I don't think Calvin was doing. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious about people's thoughts about the ending, because I've got to say it's sort of baffled me. I mean, I told you, it should have ended when they give the hug, and then that's him saying goodbye to the fantasy, and it's sort of like a nicer version of the book. And I would have accepted that. But then once that ending, it just didn't link anything back to, it was his own, it essentially the director of wanting to do his own story of it. But it, I felt like if he wanted to do that, he would re- really have had to have done his own version, which up until that point, it was too close to the book for me to work as his, what this vision was at the end. I mean, it makes sense. There, there is a slight tradition of films that, are largely set in people's minds where the ending is a sort of escape into total fantasy, like a total abandonment to fantasy as an escape. I think Brazil would be a good film to reference in that context. Um, and, and similarly, Brazil has dancing at the end because he dances off with the heroine into a fantasy ending, which bears no resemblance to reality. But it was the way, and I could have lived with it if it had gone into the dance sequence in the hall and then they danced off into the darkness and it just sort of faded out. Also would have made some sense to me as an ending. But the playing out of all the rest of the drama with the dancing and then going to the Nobel Prize thing, and it just felt like we're continuing to repeat without making any progress. You know, we're doing the same tropes in different forms, but without actually adding anything to where we were five minutes ago, which was wearing. Mm. That's how I felt, worn I think, away. I, I didn't enjoy the 
the ending at all. But I, I kind of think, I mean, I don't think the point was not to enjoy it, but I think the point was he's he's gone as far as he can, the, the, the janitor, the protagonist, or what have you. So he's just, he's just grasping at, at straws at this point. He's like, maybe we could dance off into the sunset. Okay, that doesn't work. What if my life went this way and I won the Nobel Prize? Or what if I was in a stage production and it's just him grabbing for all these things he could have done maybe um, and just trying them all as he breaks for the last time. And that's why everything up until that point, whilst surreal and abstract, has felt more realistic, like the ageing has been more realistic in terms of how it's presented. And then he's so far gone at the end, the only ageing he can picture is the over-dramatised, drawn-on makeup wrinkles rather than the authentic-looking ageing. I mean, I think, I think your explanation of it is a lot more eloquent than the thing itself. Yeah, I, I think I'm being very devil's advocate with it. Because, um, yeah, I didn't get anything from it, really. But I like to think there's something you could have got from it but I didn't, I didn't. Get I think, I think, the, I think the problem is he's just doing the same thing over and over. I don't think there's yeah. any progression. And I think that's sort of the problem with it. I, I also, as I alluded to earlier, got a bit, I, I didn't quite understand why we'd been following the Jesse Buckley character all the way through and, and suddenly we've flipped around and it's not her, it's him. Mm. But if they're both, if they're both equally fictitious, why, why do that? Yeah. Um, it would have made more sense to me if the, uh, dancer version of Jesse Buckley had been the one who got stabbed and like we're killing off that facet of the character and then yeah. get this kind of Nobel Prize I'll just, just, just continue with though if the Jesse Buckley character has been our, our vessel through his psyche let's just keep going she yeah. gets the Nobel Prize she yeah, says yeah, why the weird switch it's, it's odd hmm do you think you could have forgiven the kind of repetitive nature of the kind of no. point they were making if the film had been shorter, if it had been edited? No, a bit? I have the same problem with one of my favourite films, um, All That Jazz, hmm. which which is a, a, a an amazing film in many respects, but it is unfortunately a film about the life of the person who wrote and directed it. Ah. Um, so you can forgive, um, I'm, God, I'm going to forget his name now, uh, really famous Hollywood uh, director and choreographer. Um, yeah, I'm going to forget the name of. But naturally, because it's a film about him, he treats himself to an extended 40-minute end sequence in which he dies repeatedly for 40 minutes in different scenes with different dancing routines. And it's all exquisite. But just, it's 40 minutes. Just, you know, cut it in half. It'd be better. Yeah, yeah. Look, don't get it wrong. I can forgive Wayne's World for doing multiple endings, but... <laughs> At least they have the grace to do it in like eight minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I really love Charlie Kaufman. I just, I, I, I just think, you know, somebody and Snip Doke in New York had exactly the same problem. It, it, it just so it just really tests your patience mm. because we're, we're not stupid, as Nora said. We we got the idea of so many of these things that he's building very early on. We don't need to to be still teased. You know, so long after yeah, you've yeah, actually yeah. grasped the concept you're trying to communicate. So you could have done the whole thing much more effectively in, you know, two thirds of the time. Mm. Uh, Ellie, where would you have ended it? 
Oh, I agree. I was fully with the film, actually, and I think I enjoyed particularly the first half probably more than Sean did because yeah. we watched it together. Um, but then it just kind of started unraveling for me. And I think a lot of it's about references and getting the context because now you said about Oklahoma and explained the background of that it kind of fits together for me, but I've never seen it at home. I have no context for it. So as a viewer, I'm just like, I don't get why we're here. It doesn't mm. add anything for me. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, Ian Reid's book didn't require any previous reading to understand the point. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this feels like you could get a lot more out of it if you've read well, the, Charlie Brackman's I I sort of felt that maybe to an American audience, the Oklahoma stuff goes without explanation because no, it does no? not. We never performed Oklahoma at school. I went to American high school that was not on okay. our roster. Obviously, the idea of American high schools that I have gleaned from movies such as Mean Girls has been totally. <laughs> we did. I think we did Phantom. We did Joseph and the whatever Rainbow Jacket. Yeah, yeah, Technicolor and Dreamcoat. Cats. I think unfortunately, it was stuff like that. Oh, we did. Um, What's the Pirate of Penzance was one mm-hmm. West Side Story, I think. So, yeah. Okay, but basically you did everything except <laughs> in every possible way. Yeah. Um, because there was also a reference to Andrew Wyeth. Is it Andrew Wyeth? The painter. Oh, yeah. uh, Over my talk- head, you know. Oh, I assume this is something they teach in American high school. Nope. When they're talking about art and she and he says, oh, I really like that painting with the girl in the wheat field looking towards the barn. Yeah, I remember that says, scene. And she says, oh, you mean Andrew Wyatt? No, is I don't. That, Andrew, I forgot the name of the painter. Rock. That makes sense, but I don't think it was meant to be because that's what she learned in school. Because I, oh, I, I assumed it's, character... it's a classic American painting. I, no. I thought I really like it. I mean, if it, yeah, I, I also got the vibe that he was meant to be like an autodidact, like very, he was extremely intelligent and very self-taught and like being voracious and consuming literature and cinema and art, but just didn't know what to do with it because of his um, anxiety and other issues. Yes, I, I, I think that's probably right. And that's probably why you don't necessarily need to get all of the references and the context. Like yeah. it's there if you want to notice it. And if not, as long as you notice the fact that he is quoting and stealing and referencing. Yeah, true. Um, which, which is made fairly explicit because you see him watching people performing the play and then you see him watching the students trying to rehearse the dance and then you see the dance happening yeah, yeah. in a much more smoothly executed way. So the, the idea is there visually. What did you um, think I was, of, I was, remember when he says, when he's about to like chase after the guy who he thinks is watching them, he's like, I recognize that look. And he's almost about to like give himself away that he's like a creeper. Cause he just, you know, he watches, he doesn't know how to be participate. Creeper is a very harsh word. Well, that's what she says when she's talking about the guy at the bar. Yeah, but I, but I feel that he describes himself in extremes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one, one part of himself, when he's, when he's framing it in a positive frame of mind, describes that scenario in the bar in, in very, you know, rom-com sort of terms, very, very witty, light-hearted, engaging. When he's feeling negative and he's feeling depressed, the other half of him describes it in, in the worst possible terms. So yeah. creepy weird and why is he looking at me mm. it's odd mm. but i don't think there's anything necessarily in his behavior i think it's the slightly interesting thing that 
all of the footage that we have of the janitor, he's sort of just going about his day. Yeah. We don't really see him doing anything. Doesn't he uh, watch through a, there's like one very quick shot of him watching through a hole or something in the wall? That's when they're making out in the car. Yeah. They're watching it cut through like a cut out of a wall. Oh, sorry. I just remembered this in the book. What what did you make of the video camera th- thing in the custodian's room? Because when no, a blank. when she's in the custodian room like looking around she notices like a screen and some cameras, some video cameras, and like trying to figure out where they link to. I do remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember thinking anything. Like, wh- what is he watching? Is it like the cameras for the school, and he's watching the students over yeah. it? Because it's like, sorry, back to the book. Also, the whole scene of like the guy watching her in bed. I'm not sure if I linked that to anything yeah. towards the end. That scene fucking terrified me in the book. It was really scary because she like can't see his head, so it's just like his yeah, torso really, in the window. Really hated it. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. I forgot that scene. Yeah, that's the late reaction. Yeah. I was really, really late at night, and yeah, it spun me out. Yeah. But it's easy to forget because you don't go back to it, and mm. you don't get an. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to think about it. It is really late at night. Yeah. <laughs> the book you go back to that. The, in the the pictures she finds in the basement that Jake has apparently drawn in the book, the, the, the figure she describes is similar to the figure that she yeah. sees in this dream. Okay, but this is what I missed so in from the book because the book they were so believable, so grounded. I really bought them, so I was sort of hoodwinked almost when it comes to the end of the book. Yeah, like I felt yeah. really, I felt caught off guard. You know, you kind of have little, re- you know bits clues coming up I think with the future dialogue it's the only real clue Mm -hmm. until you get to the actual end so it was even though I didn't love the book it's not my type of story but I enjoyed he really sucked me in where the film I was just it it gave it an emotional it gave it a bit more of an emotional core because that that initial scene of them in the car you really thought of them as people yeah. and they have a, a warmth and they have a realness and you sort of almost want it to work even though the narr- narrator keeps telling you she's going to end it mm-hmm. whereas in the film from the get-go it's cold and combative yeah, yeah. and difficult and weird and so you don't really have that emotional core because it sort of feels like everyone's just playing a role rather than being you know, people you're rooting for. I thought he was just having too much fun doing little cinema gimmicks and, you know, some fun camera work, and then he forgot about actually making us care about the characters. Because I didn't care about them. Like, the janitor seemed like a nice guy, though it didn't really make sense, him completely, like, stripping naked suddenly. But, yeah, I mean, the two, their relationship, I was like, I, I was not invested or interested at all in figuring anything out about them. I didn't want to know more. They just seemed like they needed to break up. Thumbs down for me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's, it, you know, I think Anomalisa for me was one of the most, you know, devastating human portrayals on the screen I'd seen in a really long time, even though it is puppet. Mm-hmm. What do you think, think is different? Are... Why do you think this is not, it, he couldn't do that yeah. in this? But I, I think it's exactly what you said, in that Anomalisa basically is David Thewlis as a puppet talking to you out of the camera for an hour and a half. And it is just a character in dialogue. There's very little else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, I think he got really carried away with this sort of idea that he's going to have this sort of gradual 
introduction of this kind of stream of elements and the wallpaper is going to go a bit mad here and we'll change the name and we'll start changing it subtly mm-hmm. and then maybe maybe a nickname version and then by here it's a totally different name. and i'll build in all of these things and the problem is there's too much weight for the narrative to carry yeah mm-hmm. because it was, a, it was a fairly it was a fairly slight narrative to start with let's be honest so she had five names and one, two, three, four, five, like, and then like six jobs in the film, just counting. You know, I liked some of the set design, the, some of the cinematography and the little tricks were quite clever. And I don't mind him as a director. It just definitely felt like someone needed to write this that wasn't him and really give these characters heart because I didn't like his direction of them. And, and yeah, when it works, it works really well. Like yeah. there were those there were those moments like i think that moment with jesse buckley and the car where like wow that really i was really transfixed mm-hmm. so, there's a few things like that like and the performances are really good throughout yeah. the ones that grab me the most the ones where it's where it's the most human so the one where she's reading the poem is like really emotional and effective the scene when jesse buckley's talking to david Willis in the in jake's childhood bedroom and he's yeah. and they're having much more of a kind of human conversation between two people. It's really effective. Um, it just really loses me when they're having these kind of highbrow kind of art science conversations. And like you can do that, I think, but there's so much of it, it's just a bit too dense and weighty for me. Oh, there's now I Sorry, think about it. It's interesting that Nora referenced David Lynch earlier because that moment with uh, Jesse Buckley and the car doing the poetry reminded me absolutely of the moment in um, Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. where the lead character gives that amazing performance. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you're really sucked into the screen to watch. And then later in the movie, you realise it was all her fantasy and it wasn't true. Yeah. So I just remembered a line from the book, which I feel like he does in response to this line it says i wish this were more supernatural a ghost story for instance something surreal something from the imagination no matter how vile that would be much less terrifying and i feel like he makes it more supernatural more fantastical and surreal so it is less terrifying there's less i have there's no suspense whatsoever yeah. for me i'm not I mean, if you wanted if you thought about the story and started from scratch there's a very simple story to be told but actually you could tell as a, as a gradual tightening of the screws mm-hmm. that would be quite terrifying and then have a reveal yeah but the problem is we 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 don't we're not invested in the characters we don't particularly care and you're signposting what it is so early on yeah. and so heavy-handedly that actually by you know act two you're like well i guess we got another hour of this to go i know i I did was watching the clock a little bit too much same here same here and i and i and i say that with a lot of love for the director and enthusiasm for the book and a massive appreciation for all the cast yeah who was your favorite actor in this uh i mean i like jesse buckley it's it's hard not to because everybody else was asked to be a lot further out there yeah Mm -hmm. And so she was able to give a much more nuanced... Exactly, yeah. She had the most layers to her, but that's kind of because of what she was asked to do. Everyone else was asked to do this very kind of offbeat, kind of slightly off-kilter performance. So I thought everyone 
and everybody everybody else delivered exactly yeah, what they exactly wanted. that very well that's why it is disappointing and i think like you mentioned tom it kind of would have been more interesting if they made her do the oklahoma bit at the end it's such an odd choice to suddenly switch focus mm. yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't understand it because it almost it almost undermines her relevancy mm-hmm. you know it, it almost says actually the whole story's been about the guy all along because it, it's his suffering and loneliness that have led, has led us to this place. Mm. In, which case, in which case the film is saying, actually, the Jesse Buckley character is, is totally unimportant. And we should have been focusing on the guy all along, which is obviously not what we've been doing. Yeah. And yeah. They, have, they have moments where they try and allude to the fact that they are one and the same. But there's not enough of them to make that ending work when you switch. Yeah. If, that's, if, yeah. if that's what your excuse is for the ending, yeah, it doesn't work yeah. at all should have just kept it as Jesse Buckley all the way through and there's no confusion. Yeah, there's just such a lack of consist like follow through. Like you're saying, there's no consistency. Yeah. I mean, I, I get he's like having a mental breakdown, so there is no consistency, but there's no commitment to anything I felt like in the story. Yeah. Kept going off on these little tangents that... You put Jesse Buckley on stage, but wearing his outfit. And oh, that'd be great. interesting... Yes. ...moment. The, the core of it is the director was more interested in the mechanics of it structurally. Yeah, exactly. The emotional core of the story. And as a result, the audience is disengaged from a very mm-hmm. early point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At talking pig or no talking pig. <laughs> <laughs> so, unless we have any other points we want to make about the film, book, we can do a Rose, Rose and Thorns. Happy to. <laughs> Go for it. My my rose from the book is the scene when she's describing her nightmare of this headless figure at her window. Like, okay, yeah. it was like a truly terrifying bit of writing. Like, really, really creeped me out. Um, not the nails in her teeth. No. Like the dream, just visceral, the dream was yeah. for me. Um, and my thorn, my thorn is br- is broadly how quickly we got to the weird stuff in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, for a movie that's like two hours fifteen, I wish we'd spent a little bit more time trying to establish a bit of grounded reality before we start getting. Well, we've just hit two hours fifteen on recording, so it's too long. <laughs> Too long. too long. That's me. Rose. Okay. Ellie. Okay, I'll be efficient. Two hours. <laughs> um, my rose, I honestly think, although I preferred the books to the film, yeah. Rose is the performances. I actually thought they were all really great <laughs> and they were yeah. the film for me because I don't think, I think with different actors it wouldn't have worked for me at all, but there was a good portion of it where I was still invested. Um, the thorn for me was sometimes when it just got a bit too clever and worthy, both the book and the film, like I just felt like there were segments of it that I didn't really understand, but I didn't really want to. And I found that a bit exhausting. Yeah. For me, I loved in the book, just the way she describes him and his quirks and just their relationship and the way she sees people mm-hmm. really got me. So, which is why I re- they felt really 3D and grounded and 
you know, even though I didn't love the story, I just, I liked how he wrote the characters. I really enjoyed that as well as sort of getting some of their backstory and different little bits about their past. I thought was great. And then my thorn, I, yeah, just the, how overwrought the film was. It just too self-important, the sort of gimmicks constantly in the film, like little trick shots and things like that, just, you know, you know, lost me and I couldn't really engage in the, the story with the film, Tom. I mean, I, I, thorn-wise, I have to, I have to agree. Overwrought, I think, is, is a very good word to describe it. Um, it too early. It, 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 too, too early, you're aware that there's something wrong and very, very wrong, mm. and it just carries on from there. And you're not, you're not given space to immerse yourself in a world and care about characters before it starts going wrong. So emotionally, it's very hard to engage. Um, and it, it just becomes too, too, too clever. You're just trying to do too much and, and, and ultimately not doing enough as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, Rose, I loved the dance sequence in, in, the, um, in, in the high school. And, um, and I don't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'll tell you why, because I think that was the only point that I suddenly thought suddenly there might be the potential for something lyrical and there might be the potential for something magical and, and, and memorable that isn't just a progression of events and facts, that isn't ciphers I, I'm not engaging with arguing about pointless stuff, that actually there might be something more important and we might be elevating ourselves up to a, to a sort of higher plane of narrative. Well, that is a nice thought. We, we weren't, but I enjoyed yeah. the moment. And lovely dancing. They were, really <laughs> they were very good dancers. I do respect them. Well, thank you, guys. That was a good one, even though disappointing film. I'm glad I saw it to criticise it, but I would not recommend it to people, I think. Just... Mm, I think I'd be heartbroken. Oh, I would just because I want to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say it's or... great. I'd just be like, watch it and then talk to me. Yeah, I would recommend the book though. I think it's an, in, he's an interesting writer. Yeah. And I, I like the book a lot. Yeah, and if he comes out with something else, can't, can't, can't recommend Fire, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so next month's official one, so, you know, Rebecca. Don't give us that look. I guess I've seen the I've seen the film and the TV version, so I probably don't need to read the book. So <laughs> there we go. Oh, oh, come on. Just download like the Kindle preview or something. Just try and read a few pages and see whether or not you get into it. You might like it. You don't know. Daphne de <laughs> Have you read any Daphne de Moray to be so snobbish about it? I've watched a lot of that. <laughs> that is not the same. It's like I've watched a Charles Dickens film. I don't think that counts. I, I, I saw a Christmas Carol. It wasn't for me. <laughs> Such a snob. Okay, so yes. It's I'm, not a, I'm not a snob. I'm just trying to save time. <laughs> I'm trying to help culture your life a little bit.